This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we take a look at a new publication that showcases some of the best in cultural architecture from a Beijing-based studio named Open. Then, we'll hear about the fascinating relationship between sculpture and architecture in mid-century American design, and we'll take a trip to Mexico to see how Space 10, IKEA's innovation lab, is looking to the future of design through the use of the country's plentiful biomaterials. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. First up on today's show, we turn our attention to a new book that's shining a light on some of the world-leading cultural projects created in China by the architecture studio, Open. Reinventing Cultural Architecture, A Radical Vision, is a publication that showcases a varied selection of cultural buildings by the Beijing-based practice, from a rock-like chapel nestled deep in the mountains to a repurposed oil tank that is bringing new life to an industrial neighbourhood in Shanghai. To find out more about the publication, the thriving Chinese architecture scene and the work of Open, Monocle's Charlie Fillmore Court sat down with the book's author, Catherine Shaw, and one of the practice's founding partners, Wei Jing Huang. Could you maybe, Catherine, just begin by giving us an overview of the book and kind of what you hope uh, that the readers will get from it? Well, the book looks at six projects that have been designed by Open. It explores it in a slightly different way. You know, we didn't want to do a book where we just introduced the sort of final product of a project or a design and talked about it in a sort of PR-ish way. We wanted to really get stuck into the real challenges and opportunities of what it means to be designing and building in China today. We chose these projects because they, they are cultural projects, but also they're very, very different. They range from being very small and hidden to really large, monumental architectural pieces. Some of them are new-built, and others are um, a rebuilding exercise, a repurposing of existing structures. But what they all do and what they all share in common is they show the way that uh, Li Hu and Wen Jing approached their architecture in a very thoughtful, meaningful way that I think reflects how architecture is happening in China today. And I think that's interesting not just for people within China, but also architects, designers, cultural organizations outside of China. Yeah, we wanted to really sort of spark a conversation about what is cultural architecture, what is happening in China, but not in a very narrow focus, showing all the sort of shiny, fabulous final pictures. So you'll see even the way each chapter is designed, it shows the reality, it shows the grittiness of the site. Mm. And then it shows the development, and we talk very openly about what were the problems that came up, how ingenious were they to be able to work around this or turn something into an opportunity. I think the pandemic, the whole world was experiencing a shutting down of culture. It was this time where we could stop and ask ourselves, like, how are we trying to interact with culture now, whether it's performing arts or, you know, design, painting, anything, opera. How important is that as a, as a culture to everyone, not just 
maybe sort of elite levels of society, but to everyone. Mm. What are the problems with cultural institutions? Why are cultural institutions trying to address issues in terms of making it more accessible or more friendly and less standoffish or maybe or maybe intimidating you know so there are i think a lot of people around the world were asking questions and kind of leading on from that wenjing you yeah. know you you've kind of focused on the your work within the cultural sphere how difficult was it to kind of narrow down your projects and to decide on on which ones you wanted represented in this format we are quite open uh in terms of building typology we as an office would choose to engage in so like last year we finished one of probably our only one high rise uh office building besides cultural architecture we also have um many different typologies making the decision of focusing on cultural architecture was a big decision and then you know choosing the projects are relatively easy to me the cultural projects are always a lens into the social and cultural landscape of our time and place you know it's like a thermometer of what the um, the the society where the society is at at the moment it connects us to many things the other thing that is really important to remember about china is that china is culturally very diverse so the culture maybe where the ucca june museum is you know outside of beijing compared to tang shanghai which is a very urban quite hard landscape in the center these are culturally very very different contexts all architects say they you know they do their contextual analysis and everything but we all know architects who literally look at the site look at plans but the who and wenjing don't do that they go to the site they spend time on the site they talk to people they watch who uses what in the neighborhood they understand the context in a much deeper deeper way then they think about that long before they're coming along with any great idea about a design i think it's a very respectful way th- that reflects this diversity of culture and that's really interesting insight into kind of uh, the open architecture approach to things uh, and i was actually wondering wenjing whether you could maybe just briefly talk us through the the manifesto which is you know that's quite central to the book uh, and just maybe let us know about how important the manifesto is to the practice's identity and how it shapes your work. You know, I think manifesto is a risky word nowadays. You know, everything you say has multiple meanings and multiple facets to an issue. We wrote the manifesto fairly recently. It's not a declaration of what our agenda is or what we plan to do in the future. It's more of a reflection of who we are you know what we believe in and how we anchored our architecture it's deliberately written in a more relaxed tone rather than a sort of strong firm declaration kind of thing one central idea is connection you know how our architecture can connect us with other people 
architecture as a vehicle, as a place for people to meet, to share, and architecture as a connection, establish a connection between us and nature, much more than just beautiful flowers and trees, but our environment and other kind of insects, animals, and everything. This is a very Chinese belief uh, in a way. Also importantly, the ultimate goal is architecture can help us to connect with our self, you know, our inner self, our spirit, the ultimate self-reflection. So this is a central idea in all the projects we do. Each of the projects as a new discovery for us. The next part to us, very important thing, architecture must be radical. This talking about strategies in dealing with problems, issues, complexities. For us, we have to come with innovative, radical strategies to deal with the problems on hand. But on the other hand, the architecture has to be poetic in spirit so that it can touch people. When you kind of work through the manifesto like that, you can see how it literally manifests in, in the work that you do. I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned there about how a Chinese approach and Chinese cultural traditions informs a lot of your work. And obviously you've also had experience working in the US as well. But Catherine, how important do you think it is that, you know, books like this can, can show and demonstrate the importance of breaking free from a, a kind of Western-centric outlook on architecture. You know, there's been such a dominance of Western architectural thinking, and we've seen that as China has been this architectural playground for decades now. So I think it is absolutely critical that people start to understand that there is a newfound way of thinking about architecture that reflects Chineseness. Mm. I think this insider-outsider experience is very important. The fact that Li Hu and Wen Jing studied overseas, they read, they travel, you know, they have a very open outlook on life. And then I also am a sort of insider-outsider. lived in Asia for 35 years. First went to China in 1991. And as an urban planner, you know, I, I saw the sorts of architecture and the sorts of buildings that you wouldn't see if you were going as a tourist because you just look differently. So I think it's really important to be able to tell the story inside China but also outside of China. Mm. It's not a threat. It's not necessarily different. It is different because the context and the culture is different. I think that's really exciting. It's fascinating and it can only be good, I guess, for the architecture industry as a whole. And Wen Jing, obviously you speak about this approach and kind of your your different experiences, how they inform your architecture, but could you maybe just explain to us how some of these cultural buildings in particular, maybe the ones that, that are shown in the book, how <laughs> there are certain differences that we might not be used to seeing in, in Western culture institutions or buildings? You know, I realized this uh, through the many talks with Catherine, that one thing these projects in the book seem to share is the kind of lack of established institution that normally precedes the commission of architecture in the Western world. You know, we are often, um, we won the competition, we're commissioned with a project before we knew who are the operators. 
So this poses lots of challenges at the time. Who answers your questions? In the West, you might be tied down by program books, lots of restrictions. And here, because we, we are at the stage of fast development, the technology is there. Whole society sentiment is um, welcoming innovation and creativity. A lot of institutions are new, newly developed and newly established, like Tang Shanghai. In a way, you know, it gave us tremendous freedom in bringing different things together. I start to see that the newer kind of institutions are more like hybrid, new species. An art museum is no longer just an art museum. It can host all different types of activities. Tech fairs, digital shows can host fashion shows. It becomes a much more comprehensive art center. And also the end users become much more involved in the making of place in an art museum. One of the things that really stood out for me just in terms of designing for a Chinese context was, for example, when they're designing um, an auditorium for opera or theater, Chinese theater and Chinese opera is different. It has different needs. Yet the entire design of an auditorium, of a stage, is set by how we need it if we were in Rome or London. It actually takes quite a lot for the architects to step around that, take what's good, what really will work from that Western centuries of development for a reason, and to bring in what is needed for Chinese, or to allow both. Those are the sorts of tweaks. And also the outside space, the way that they design, you know, benches or planting or things to allow communities to use right up against the building, that space. It's not something that belongs to the museum. It belongs to the community. And they will come and dance there. They will come and sleep there. They'll come and play. But it's designed for that in a way that I'm starting to see other places around the world are doing in a, in a generous way. I mean, I love, I love traveling in Europe and I love New York. I, I love these contexts with history. Those are very privileged experiences for me. But there is something so exciting about being in China and seeing some of these projects. And the reason I wanted to write this book was the feeling I had when I walked into the UCCA Dune project. It was the first of their projects that I'd actually been in. And you know, as an architectural writer, we're exposed to so much, we're really spoiled, that you do sometimes go in and go, yes, 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 it's lovely, it's so fabulous, but it doesn't touch you. I walked into the UCCA Dune Museum and I stood there and I just felt something so profound that I just thought I want to know why they did this. I want to understand what is in their mind to create this. And then that's how we started. That was Wei Jing Huang and Catherine Shaw speaking to Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court. Reinventing Cultural Architecture, A Radical Vision is published by Rizzoli and out now.
Now we head to the US to reflect on a unique moment in time that saw sculpture and architecture perfectly intertwine. In the post-war period, there was a synergy and exchange between art and architecture that saw buildings designed with both disciplines in mind. This unprecedented combination, which had not really been seen before or since, gave rise to some of the era's most notable designs, such as Philip Johnson's Four Seasons Restaurant and the Philharmonic Hall at Lincoln Centre. To give us the lowdown on why this moment of combination was so important, and ultimately what we can learn from it today, here's Marin R. Sullivan, art historian, curator, and author of Alloy's American Sculpture and Architecture at Mid-Century. My background is actually as, as an art historian and, and specifically as a scholar of, of sculpture from the post-war latter half of the 20th century. This was something that when I was trained, no one really ever kind of talked about sculpture of the 50s, especially in, in the, the context of American sculpture. The premise of the book really looks at this moment in the immediate post-war period, so roughly the late 1940s to the early 1960s. It became this really remarkable moment when I think artists and architects were interested in a renewed sense of collaboration, how their two disciplines could each be mutually beneficial, something that kind of harkened back to earlier moments in human history, kind of thinking of Gothic period with cathedrals or the Renaissance when art and architecture seemed to have a lot more symbiosis with each other. In the immediate post-war period, it was a kind of short-lived little moment when architects and, and artists, particularly sculptors, started collaborating again. Anytime you work on anything post-war, there's like the sense that like the war just ends and things are radically different than they were before. And of course, that's not true. And I think part of the modernist project, both in art and architecture, was really kind of sorting out these relationships. I think if you kind of look at the earlier moment of the first half of the 20th century, for example, and thinking about the kind of rise of modernism within architectural practice, there's certainly a lot of these conversations that are already happening before the war, coming out of the Bauhaus and European modernism. And of course, you know, I think the shift that occurs in the post-war period is that a lot of those practitioners and theorists and, and, and thinkers are emigrating to the United States because of World War II. Because in the United States, there's this influx of modernist artists and architects. A lot of that kind of transfers over. So when there is this kind of big post-war building boom and reshaping of American cities, so those are the principles they're drawing on. But those principles began in the 20s and in the 30s. And even if we can look at the modernist context of things like constructivism or de Stiel in, in Europe, there's obviously a lot of transference going back and forth between architecture and sculpture and, and art during this time period. Architecture remains the kind of top dog in this situation, right? Like, I think for architects working at this time period, this kind of sense of like the mother of all the arts, right? That it's like, that's the most important part. So it was never a really, even in the best cases, the collaboration really wasn't one as equals, right? There's always something in which the building serves a greater function and the artwork always does feel superfluous at the end of the day. Saarinen could have built a building and, and not have any art in it, and it can still function as a building. Now, I think, as I would argue in the book, some of the collaborations that incorporate artwork and particularly sculpture into those projects make the building better and not just aesthetically, like how the space actually functions becomes better because of the sculpture in it. But at the end of the day, the sculpture is always going to be a kind of add-on thing to it. 
So it's not necessarily a, a relationship of equals, but I do think it becomes a two-way street of exchange. And this is, I think, why it became an important focus in the book, sculpture specifically, right? Because there's murals being made and tapestries and paintings being commissioned. And it's not like this idea of collaboration between art and architecture isn't just occurring in sculpture. But I think what becomes unique about the relationship with sculpture and architecture is that there is a shared material language, like literally the stuff is the same that things are being made out of. There's a resonance between materials. There's a resonance between the idea of shaping of space and volume and scale, right? These are all things that sculpture has a really close connection with architecture. In writing the book, it's it's also not something where I'm calling for a complete kind of collapse of disciplinary boundaries. Architecture is inherently doing something very different than sculpture is, and I think they're both better off for it. But I, I would say two things on that front. One is that I think it's the model that we see in this kind of golden age of projects in the immediate post-war period that to me still felt really fresh, because I think it is what creative practitioners do today, right? I think people in general, while still maybe really being invested in being a sculptor or an architect or a designer or a painter, the fluidity across those disciplinary bounds have continued to break down. And so they don't seem as rigid as maybe they once were. And I think that's also a legacy of, of the time period that Alloy's traces. I think the other central thesis with Alloy's is also that it's not about collapsing into something new, it actually is about maintaining those boundaries, right? It's where those boundaries meet that something really special happens and it can become greater than the individual discipline on its own, but they still maintain their own particular categories. Even if you aren't totally conscious of it, right? Like even if you're not a design person or an art historian, I think you walk into those space where an interesting collaboration has happened, you react to it differently and you take it in differently and maybe it gives you pause. There's this wonderful example from Richard Lippold. He's talking about the project he did for the Pan Am building, which is also still in situ flight. It's one of the kind of key case studies towards the end of the book. And he's like, hundreds of thousands of people are going in there every day. Even if I can get like 2% of people to stop, one person to stop and look at that work or think about the space differently, like how incredible is that? If I can do that every day of the year, that there is still value in having art in our public spaces and in the public sphere. Thanks to Marin R. Sullivan there, Alloy's American Sculpture and Architecture at Mid-Century is published by Princeton University Press and out now. And finally on today's show, we head to Mexico City to look at the work of Space 10, IKEA's innovation lab. Recently, the organisation has been looking into a move away from the typical human-centric approach to design, instead exploring the myriad of ways in which the country's plentiful supply of biomaterials can be used. For more on this groundbreaking project, here's Monocle's Louis Harnett O'Mara. After launching in Mexico City, IKEA's Space 10 Lab has spent six weeks working with a team of five designers, giving them the time and space that they need to develop new biomaterials meaning materials for building and crafting, made of anything from soil to food waste. Though there's no guarantee that these materials will be used in mass production for IKEA, 
It's an important part of experimenting in different countries with practices on the ground. The project's coordinator, Elsa Dagny Agjesdotter, filled me in on what some of these designers have been working on. We have Taina Campos, uh, who is working with uh, corn, specifically corn husk, which is what wraps uh, the corn. And she's creating these packaging based out of that. And then we have uh, Bertine Lopez, who is working with rambutan, which is this uh, fruit <laughs> that has like spikes. But it has some really interesting capabilities, this fruit, because it can basically be deconstructed and reconstructed without any additives. So that's really, really interesting, and there's a lot of opportunities there. Then we have Gabriel Cavillo, who is working with beeswax. So he's on a little bit of a different scale, if you will, but he's doing a, an interspecies collaboration with those bees, so helping them construct their homes. So it's almost like prefab home for bees. <laughs> And uh, Karen Kirstin Poline, she is uh, working with soil, and she's actually pouring soil, almost like concrete, suggesting an alternative for concrete, which is really uh, unsustainable. So trying to see how we can work and build our houses in a more sustainable way. And then last but not least, Paloma uh, Moran Palomar, uh, who's with us today. She's uh, working with tamarind. So Paloma. If you could tell me a little bit about your material and the story behind it and yourself, how you came to be working with tamarind. My grandfather dedicated his life to harvest tamarind and all my family from my mom's side still do it. So I grew up uh, seeing all these tamarind fields. I'm very familiar with the fruit, the material. I know like everything it has to do with the way they harvest the fruit. And uh, growing up when I studied industrial design, I was very interested in circular design and sustainable opportunities and new ways of making materials and production. So I came across all these ideas of recovering waste that comes from agriculture, something that we will always need. And food is always going to be important for us. So the more we can recover from that, the more sustainable design we can do. To me, it was like the most immediate thing to think about tamarind because I grew up with tamarind around. We've actually got some samples of it in front of us. I've got this sort of strange... <laughs> <laughs> like thread? A number of threads, yeah, that have been kind of woven together. And you've also got a carpet um, that you could even roll out, which is about three meters long, with varieties of how, how tightly woven that is. First of all, I'd be interested to hear about any precedents for your work. Do you know any people who have been working with these tamarind fibers before you and, and have shown you the ropes a little bit on how to work with this material? I haven't uh, met someone who has worked with tamarind fibers before, but these fibers uh, have been treated by me with the same techniques and the same uh, knowledge that other fibers are treated, you know, and I... I was very lucky to get to work with some artisans that work with looms, with cotton looms or other fibers that are natural also. And they taught me how to make the threads, how to weave, ancestral knowledge and all the heritage we have in Mexico from artisans are very important when we look at new materials because there is no machines that can do that right now. So when we are investigating for new materials, we often have to look back to ancestral techniques and the way artisans work. And if you could tell me a little bit about the process, because it seems quite fascinating how you, how you make it here. You were showing me a video earlier of how you put it together. First, you have to get 
the fiber from the tamarind. And as you can see here, it's connected to the pulp. It's the one that sticks the pulp together and it's connected to the tree. I'm, I'm looking at it now. We've got a sort of seed shape here with a number of lumps in it. But if you break it open, then you can see just a string that runs all the way through it to uh, exactly the point where it joins the tree. Most people uh, make candy with this. And to make that, they need to take away the crust and the fibers because they don't use it in the candy. And these fibers are just discarded. Sometimes they, they use it as compost, but most of, of the time it's just thrown away. We get these short fibers that we have to clean because they have rests of pulp in there. To make a thread like this, the one we have in here that is like the thinner thread I used for the rug, we have to put them in water, boil them, because we need the, the fiber to be uh, soft. That way we can then smash them. And it's very similar to the process they use with agave fibers to make other kinds of products. And also we have to brush it. And as you can see, you have thinner fibers here than the ones that are naturally from the fruit. Once we have those very, very thin fibers, we use a spinning wheel to make threads. And those threads, then I use them to make the rug with a traditional weaving loom that it's called telar de cintura. So tell me, what's, what potential do you see in this? I mean, you, you've made your rug, but how, how do you see this expanding if it were to expand? I always like to see this new material not as a enormous production I don't imagine it being like industrialized like that much because we also have to respect the environment and we need to be very conscious about how much of this material we actually have in hand, you know. But it definitely has potentials as a fiber for textiles. And as long as, as we keep on a local and more controlled production, it can be used like home accessories and decoration also. You can find Paloma Moran Palomar's tamarind biomaterial on show at PAD Jalisco in Guadalajara until May the 17th. For Monocle in Mexico City, I'm Louis Hanatomara. My thanks to Louis Hanatomara there for that report. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Filmer Court and Maylie Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manese. Thanks for listening.